The crucifixion must have been a hideous event. Hard to believe that people would just watch it for the sheer spectacle of it. It's a sad statement of the utter depravity of human nature. It's impossible to know how many exactly died by crucifixion, but based on historical records, the Romans killed at least 10,000 people through this method of execution. We're a couple of centuries removed now from the hideous practice, and we tend to forget how gruesome it was. I think we tend to minimize what Jesus suffered on our behalf. That's been one of the benefits, I think, for me as I've put together this series. I've been reminded of what Jesus suffered for me. We've been looking at the seven phrases that Jesus uttered from the cross. In part one, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we learned how imperative it is for us to forgive, even as we have been forgiven by God. In part two, we saw how two thieves died within a few feet of the Savior of the world. One repented, and one doubled down. One would find himself that very day in paradise. The other, not so much. Part three dealt with the selflessness of Jesus as he made a provision for his mother, even as he hung on the cross. His selfless commitment to the will of his Father was exactly what we needed if the righteousness of the law was to be fulfilled. Last week we talked about the fact Jesus was God forsaken. In his darkest hour, he was abandoned. This gives him a unique perspective as we turn to Him in our dark hours and difficult times. He's, he's been there. He can relate. He felt forsaken too. The series is called Seven Words of Love. We had the hardest words, words of hope, selfless words, desperate words, and today, in part five, we delve into the humanity of Jesus. His frail humanity is expressed from the cross in John 19, 28, where it is recorded, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Human words. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the cross. Sometimes we become a little too familiar with the cross. We're not shocked by it anymore. We take it a bit for granted. It rolls off our tongue all too easy. So Lord, I pray that through this series, we would be reminded again of all that you suffered for us. That we would not just breeze past it, but we would contemplate all that you suffered for us today. All that you suffered for us in your humanity. In Jesus' name, amen. Human words. 
there, there's several false doctrines afoot here, and we, we want to make sure that, that we get it right. Jesus was not half human and half God. He was not God sometimes and human at other times. So allow me to lay out a statement, and then we can move forward from there. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. He was begotten of the Father, and you beget what you are. Two human parents, we had the babies up here, two human parents beget a human child. That's different than something that's created or made. If someone makes a garage, it's different than what they are. If they beget a child, they have begotten what they are. You understand the difference there? Beget is an important word in the scriptures. That's why when the new versions start making these subtle changes, like removing the word beget, I think we ought to take note. It's more than an effort to make it easier to understand. It can undermine key doctrine. Take heed, church. Hold tightly to your King James Bible. It won't be too long. The only place you'll be able to find one is on the shelf of a museum somewhere. Jesus was begotten of the Father and Mary. At the heart of the Nicene Creed are these words. We believe the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And remember, you beget what you are. You create or make something different. God created Adam and Eve. They are different than him. Jesus was begotten of Mary and begotten of God. Fully human and fully God. When we speak of the deity of Jesus, we cannot water it down to mean that he was simply supernatural or superhuman. He was and is God. He was God manifest in the flesh. This is why he alone is able to redeem. As God and man, he is in a unique position. This explains why he is the one to whom we can freely offer our worship and he's the one to whom we can willingly surrender our lives. Jesus is, first of all, fully God. Jesus is fully God. And don't you forget it. He does not, nor did he set aside his deity. He didn't step out of his deity. Jesus has always been and always will be fully God. Perhaps the example of a dad wrestling with his five-year-old son can help us to understand. The dad can easily overpower his small child. He absolutely possesses the strength the ability and the skill 
to subdue the child. But he chooses to operate as a child himself. He is always every bit the dad. But he chooses to operate without accessing for a time and for a reason the power he possesses. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is both God and man. And while a certain amount of of mystery will always accompany this concept, both Scripture and, to a lesser extent, church tradition provide for us important distinctions to help us make sense of this matter. While previous church councils had deliberated over issues pertaining to the nature of Christ and his relationship to the Father, it was the Council of Chalcedon in AD 481 that affirmed that Christ is the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. It's not true simply because the Council taught it, Rather, the council's declaration was authoritative only insofar as aligned with what the Bible teaches on the subject. Remember, truth is the relationship between what you believe and what really is. Scripture is clear that Jesus is God. There are a host of scriptures and evidences to this fact He was referred to as God. He received and accepted worship. He laid claim to divinity. And he fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies through his life, death, and resurrection. But Jesus also displayed the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities common to humanity. One powerful example is found here in John 19, 28, as he proclaimed his thirst from the cross. All three members of the Godhead have existed and reigned from all of eternity past. They have no beginning and no end. The second person of that trinity, the Son, took on human flesh at a particular point in time. Luke 1.35 says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, the angel told Mary, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also that holy thing that shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. God the Son added a sinless human nature to His eternally existent divine nature. The result was the incarnation. God the Son became man. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that term, the Word, is a a clear reference to Jesus. Just a few verses later, it continues, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I believe it's significant to state definitively that at no time did Jesus ever cease to be God. Although he was fully human, there was never a point when he abrogated or surrendered his divine nature. Jesus is not and was not half human and half divine. Rather, he is Theanthropos, the God-man. The Lord Jesus Christ is one eternally divine person who will forever possess two distinct yet inseparable natures. He is both divine and human. Jesus is fully God. He is also fully man. Now here's another doctrinal statement well worth making. Everything that Jesus did on earth, we can do. John 14, 12 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believes on me, this is Jesus talking, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. If that isn't true, then Jesus is not our example. But he is our example. We are not to be like God. Sometimes we think we're trying to be like God. We're not trying to be like God. We're trying to be like the human aspect of Jesus. Satan wanted to be like God. We want to be like Jesus. The definitive scripture on this is found in, in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it to you. It says, let this mind be in you. This is Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So again, we're talking about, we want to be like Jesus, right? So let this mind be in you, that was in Christ Jesus. Now it kind of goes back to the divinity of God. And it's showing us how amazing this is. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's who he was. That's, that's, who is, who, that's, that's his nature is, is both human and divine. That speaks of the God part. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. That, that's the human part. And being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself. Now this is the part that we're supposed to be like, the human part. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The words of Jesus from the cross are poignant. Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It emphasizes the fact that he did this in his humanity. He did it in the fashion of a man. He did it in the likeness of a man. God clothed in human flesh. 
thirst. Earlier in the day, he had declined the intoxicating wine mixed with myrrh offered by the women of Jerusalem to the pitiful victims of crucifixion. He refused the intoxicant because he needed to experience all the pain and all the suffering of crucifixion. He had to identify with all the agonies found in the realm of time and space. There was no way to save us without that. There was, he, he couldn't take any shortcuts. There could be no divine intervention. Then as he hung in agony on the cross, hours into the torturous process, comes the appeal of Jesus for a drink to soothe his parched tongue. The human words, I thirst, reveal to us the Jesus who knew hunger and thirst and, and pain. It was a vivid demonstration of the reality of his humanity. It was he, Jesus, you remember, who sat on the edge of the well in weariness under the noonday sun and asked for a cup of water from a woman who had been ostracized by society. The words, I thirst, reveal again to us the Jesus who fell asleep out of pure exhaustion in the back of a boat in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He was God, but he was also every bit man. He was God manifest in the flesh, according to 1 Timothy 3.16, another verse tampered with by the new translations, it now says he was manifest in the flesh. But the KJV had it right. A profound, precise, clarion, clear, doctrinal declaration. God is manifest in the flesh. He took upon himself man's nature with all its essential properties and common infirmities yet without sin. And he did it willingly. He willingly chose to operate within the limitations of his humanity. We get a glimpse of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember as the, as the army comes to apprehend Jesus, Peter lops off an ear of one of the soldiers and Jesus heals him. And then Jesus says, thinkest do you think that I couldn't pray to my Father and he would send 12 legions of angels? Jesus could have summoned the armies of, of heaven to come to his aid, but that would have undermined his purpose and his cause. There could be no divine intervention. What he did, he had to do in his humanity. The same is true as he stood silent before Pilate. Eventually, Pilate, out of frustration and bewilderment, says, how come you're not defending yourself? Don't you realize the power that I have over you? And Jesus looks at him. He says, you could have no power at all against me, except that it's given to you from above. I picture that that sent a chill down Pilate's spine. Yes, Jesus was operating as a man, but he was every bit God. There was what Jesus chose to do, and there was also what he could do. 
Hebrews 2.17 gives us the reason that Jesus had to be both God and man. Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest to the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He assumed the role of the Old Testament high priest and made atonement for us through his sacrifice on the cross. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It, it all makes perfect sense. We've talked in recent weeks how the holy, hallowed God of heaven cannot be in the presence of sin. His awesome, omnipotent, perfect, flawless nature cannot tolerate sin. His glory is simply, the fullness of his, his glory, the fullness of his nature is simply not compatible with sin. It would be like putting a snowball in a wood stove. At that point, we have no hope, no access into the presence of God. Enter Jesus. It's the perfect plan of God whose heart is filled with love. It's a plan conceived from the very foundation of the world. It's not a plan of judgment. It's a plan of redemption. But ultimately, the choice is ours. Jesus was God. He, he took on flesh, sinless flesh. Therefore, he's the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful fallen man. Hebrews 7 says it well, beginning in verse 24. But this man, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So the old order of priests, would, they would come and go. Here we have an unchangeable priesthood in Jesus. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Powerful doctrinal statement. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, verse 26, became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as the old order of high priests did, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, that's what the priest had to do. Before he could offer sacrifice for the people, he had to offer sacrifice for his own sins. And then for the peoples, for this, he, for this Jesus did once, when he offered up himself. The belief that Jesus is God and man is of fundamental importance. If you're wrong here, it doesn't matter what you believe anywhere else. 2 John 1.7 says, For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So if you don't believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh, 
You've, you've missed the key doctrine. And now you're a deceiver and an antichrist. First John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son, the same as not the Father. He that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Jesus is and always has been God. It's equally true that after becoming incarnate, the Son has never ceased to be human. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. As we contemplate the crucifixion, never forget that he didn't have to do this. He chose to do it because of his great love for you and for me. What a great and epic tragedy if somehow we miss it or ignore it or minimize it. God help us. The crucifixion coupled with the resurrection is the most significant event in history. All of time and history revolves around this moment. The, the calendar itself is divided around the life of Jesus. B.C. is before Christ. A.D. is Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. This is 2019. A.D. 2019, in the year of the Lord. Where do you think they got that? Because all of history stopped. When Jesus entered the picture. The historicity of Jesus is not even in dispute. He lived. He died. He rose again. The only question that remains is what are you going to do? Jesus said, I thirst. And I hope that somehow in these last few weeks as, as we've contemplated the cross that it's cultivated in you a thirst for Jesus. Would you bow your head with me this morning? Over and over in this series, I've talked about, and again, as every head is bowed and every eye is kind of closed, and that's just to give you privacy as we contemplate some of these things, kind of to close out the distractions. But over and over again, we've, we've talked about the righteousness of the law. There's this law that, that, that somehow we feel like we have to obey. If I'm to go to heaven, I've got to keep the law. The problem with that is you've already fallen short. You're already a sinner. If you're anything like me, you have no hope. And so our one hope becomes a savior. Our one hope becomes the one who can pay our penalty for us. It's a penalty we can't pay for ourselves. We have to come to God by him, it said. And so we receive his sacrifice on our behalf. Now, now what does that mean? Does that mean we just give mental assent to it? 
A lot of people say, I believe in God. But the book of James says, even the demons believe in God. And they tremble. So it's really more than that. It, it involves a key word, and sometimes I think it's the missing link in the modern gospel, and that's repentance. So if we truly believe it, if we truly receive Jesus, then we, then we repent. That's the natural reaction. That means we turn from our sin. To repent involves a change of direction. We begin to live our life for him. Why, why would we do that? Because he loved me enough to give his life for me that I might have hope of salvation. Before I ever loved Jesus, he loved me enough to give his life for me on Calvary's cross. The more I understand that, the more I contemplate that, the more it changes me from the inside out. And now I just want to live for him. And that's what it means to be born again. Lord, for the one that's here today who maybe sees it a little bit differently now than they did when they came in. They want to begin to live for you. They want to be saved. They want their sins to be washed away by that eternal high priest who shed his blood on our behalf. Lord, for that one that needs that today, I pray that they would receive you by faith in Jesus' name. With every head still bowed and every eye closed, if that speaks of you today, you're saying, Tom, I need Jesus. I've lived my own life. I've even tried to be good. But now I'm recognizing I can never be good enough. I need Jesus to be the Savior of my soul. If that's you, just slip up your hand so I can include you in our closing prayer here this morning. I see that hand way in the back. God bless you. Someone else today, I see that hand toward the front. Thank you. Someone else today, today's your day. God bless you. In the back to my right, thank you. You need Jesus today. You need to receive the sacrifice that he bore for you. You need to receive the penalty that he paid on your behalf. And you're here this morning. You're saying, Tom, that's me. I need to receive that. doesn't mean you've become a member of our church. It just means that you're receiving Jesus as, as, a, as your Savior. If that's you today. All right, let me speak to one more group here. Maybe you're here today and, and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you've, you've kind of drifted back under the law. You've kind of began to see yourself as self-sufficient. I can be good enough. And so you begin to forget about Jesus a little bit. And you begin to think about your own way of living, so to speak. You go around to establish your own righteousness, the Bible says. If that's you, you've just been reminded of how you are totally dependent on Jesus. If that's you today, slip up your hand. I see that hand. Hands going up all, all around the auditorium. God bless you. God bless you. Yes, yes, yes. Lord. Lord, we just acknowledge the cross today. Lord, we know how lost we would be without it. And the, the thought that you did that in your humanity without divine intervention is mind-boggling. 
I'm humbled by it. I don't understand how you could love me that much. So Lord, we just receive it by faith. It's beyond us. We receive it by faith. We come to God, that perfect, holy God, not in our own strength, but we come by Jesus. He cleanses us of our sin. The perfect mediator between God and man cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And now we come boldly into the throne room of God. We lift our hands and worship and praise. We say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we receive that from you. In Jesus' name. I'm going to invite you to stand. and The worship team is going to sing a song. And, and, and you're coming into the very throne room of God. Not in your own righteousness. Because you're incompatible with a holy God. But you're here in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So worship Him this morning in spirit and in truth.